everyone and welcome to another Scots We Hate podcast and tonight I'd like to say welcome to Stuart and Carl David. Thank you for coming along. Hi, it's good, good to be here. Um, we're going to talk, we're going to talk about a few things now, I don't know whether you realise this, but we're going to talk about um, your book Stuart um, in the All Night Cafe which has just come out yeah. about the early days of um, Bell and Sebastian which uh, you, you were a former member or founder member I should say. Um, but we're also going to talk about Looper. I've got uh, a box set out with some new material on it. Is that right? There is, yeah. There's, we put a new album out at the same time, and most of the new albums are on the box set. Okay. How many songs are there? Um, seven, seven tracks from the new album. Yeah. Oh, excellent. Yeah. Okay, well, we'll talk about the box set later before I get sidetracked. Um, believe it or not, there is some kind of structure to these things. Um, so, starting off with uh, In the All Night Cafe, um, it opens with an afternoon in 1994 and then moves on from there. So just explain about what that, the kind of beginnings of you wanted to be a musician. Yeah, it covers quite a short period and I, it says in the subtitle it's a year but I think it's really 18 months mm -hmm. but it starts at a point where I'd already been a musician for maybe 10 years. Uh, that's all I'd been, been doing for 10 years. But during those 10 years there wasn't really anything of any note <laughs> that happened, so I just started at the point where where something was starting to happen. Because you joined, um, there was a kind of course going on, wasn't it? A music course that you that in Glasgow that you came, came to, to kind of be involved in? Yeah, there was a course for unemployed musicians called Beatbox in Finiston. Uh, and it was just a, it was just one of those courses when you've been signing on for, I think it was like, well, at the time it was probably a few years, but now mm. it's about 13 weeks before you have to go on a course. So it was really just one of those courses to bring the numbers down yeah. for the, who was, how many people were unemployed. And it wasn't really, the uh, there was nothing really to learn there. It was really just a holding tank. From the descriptions <laughs> in the book, you know, you meet quite a lot of disparate characters who are yeah. into very different music and other things as well. Um, so, how did from that beginning? How did you, you know we make the connections that would eventually become Bell and Sebastian? Well, I think when I joined the course at first, you were only on two days a week, maybe three days a week, mm -hmm. and. There was a guy called Alistair who was doing the same days as me. But I think he must have been coming in for the whole week or something because he also knew Stuart Murdoch who was doing the the different three days from me. Uh -huh. And he invited us both round to his house one day to practice with him. But we both just thought it was only us, only I so you thought it was, was going just, to be, ah, okay. just going to be a sort of one-on-one -on -one thing with him. Uh, and when we turned up, we found each other there. And uh, what some people might not know, I suppose many people will, was that the original name of the band was Lisa Help the Black Helps the Blind. Yeah. And yeah. was that just the three of you to begin with? Yeah, that was just the three of us for... It seems like a long time, uh, but I, I can't really remember exactly how long it was, but it was, uh, to begin with, it was a sort of three songwriters band, 
and we would each sing lead vocals on the songs we had written. Mm-hmm. Uh, but me and Alistair also both had our own bands for doing our own material, but Stuart Murdoch didn't, so it quickly became just a band to play Stuart's songs, but with Alistair in charge, it was really... Right. there was the driving force behind it, really. Okay, and at the time, what, what was the... Was there a kind of supportive Glasgow music scene? Um, or did you not feel really part of anything like that? It was it was kind of unclear how much was going on in Glasgow or how many musicians there were until you got into beatbox and came across maybe... There must have been a couple of hundred musicians wow. that you'd never really come across before who all had bands but who were all struggling to get gigs because there was it was quite an exclusive classical music scene at the time there was only really two ways you could go one was white funk mm-hmm. and the other was the kind of oasis proto oasis thing that was just happening at that time yeah wearing your anorak and uh, playing playing electric guitar yeah um so when the you start to um get other musicians around you i said in my review it's, it seems a bit like the picking of the magnificent seven <laughs> did you have these musicians that went they'll fit or that personal fit I mean, or was there a kind of idea about how you wanted the band to what you wanted the band to become or was it just it became that way organically well after Alistair decided we weren't getting anywhere quickly enough and he needed to get famous so he left and that really just left me and Stuart adrift kind of because Alistair had been driving the thing Uh, and I had my own band and Stuart wanted to have his own band but uh, had never been able to find MD to be in it and I think he himself had a kind of idea of who he would want to be in his band Uh, but they didn't exist I don't think (laughs) I was going to say they're not specific people but kind of ideals kind of ideals I think but we would just play with anybody for a while and beatbox and there was a kind of ever-changing lineup of loads of people who obviously didn't fit. Yeah. Uh, and then suddenly a, a band started to come together that was the band Stuart wanted, but not really the people he had imagined, I don't think. I, don't, I think he still had an imaginary band in his head that he called Bell and Sebastian. Right. That was quite separate from the bunch of people that he'd ended <laughs> up with. <laughs> um, so, at the time, uh, or eventually, the Stowe College uh, relationship starts up, which is eventually they put out um, Tiger Milk on yeah. the course, which was a music business course, is that right? Yeah, it was run by Alan Rankin from the Associates yeah and it was it, it was a music business course to, I think to give people experience of all the different jobs that were available in the music business and to illustrate that he would just have them put out a record mm-hmm. to see what all the roles that were involved in putting out a record 
so that you could work out what uh, what kind of area of it you wanted to go into. Uh, but I, I don't think the record was an important part of it. Yeah. I think it, it was just a sort of side issue to give them something to do. Like a project almost. Yeah. Okay. And whether it came out or not wasn't really perhaps as... No, whether... When it came out, that was the end of the course, so if anything came up that wasn't really relevant. I was it's funny thinking that Alan Rankin was doing this, because I always think of a man in makeup with chopsticks in his hair, <laughs> <laughs> walking about at college. But, um, so that was how the college kind of viewed it. How, at this point, did you see it as being, well, we can get this made on not other people's time, but, you know, we can get the the backing to do it and then we can give it a life after that? Not really. I, I think uh, the offer came along quite sort of accidentally because Richard Colburn was on the music business course right. and he was my flatmate and he had... I think he had put one of Stuart's tapes in for it because the course had heard a demo on the radio but I don't think Stuart had actually heard of the course mm-hmm. or put a tape in for, for it. So when he was offered to do the single, uh, he'd already decided nothing was happening for him in Glasgow and he was going to move to San Francisco. Yeah. Uh, so when when the offer came up, it wasn't something that he was even particularly interested in at the time. He didn't really have any plan for it except... To not do it <laughs> because it does seem that Richard Coburn is um, instrumental in kind of getting getting things moving. Yeah, yeah. Neil, yeah. Neil, who who became Bell and Sebastian's manager, was also on that music course, right. uh, and I think it was him that had heard the demo on on the radio. Um, but I think because Richard was on the course. He had more of an idea of the potential of putting the record out with them, whereas to us it just seemed like it's just a college course and it it, it doesn't really it can't really benefit them. Anyway. So how did it get? How did Tiger Milk get picked up after that? Was it just almost word of mouth or? Well, initially it didn't. We all had boxes of it on there was only a thousand <laughs> copies sounds familiar <laughs> minus what had been destroyed at the launch party when people used them as frisbees <laughs> and the rest of them were just underneath our beds we all had like 200 copies each or something like that various Christmas presents we out. yeah <laughs> so it really didn't take off and even after it had come out me and Stuart took some copies through to a record shop in Edinburgh and they wouldn't take them because uh, they said, oh, I'm not really interested in this. So nothing happened with it at all to begin with. Uh, but something happened within the industry where I think to do with Alan Rankin, mm-hmm. the band had become a sort of a buzzword with London A&R people, but we didn't have an audience or... Yeah. at that point who had responded to Tiger Milk because I'm thinking if, if the Glasgow music scene was as you described it then 
you almost have to build your audience from scratch and your yeah. following from scratch. Yeah. Um, and again, it's astonishing, as you say, it's written over a short period. Yeah. Things move incredibly quickly. Yeah. Were you aware of that at the time? Did you feel this is unusual in terms of a band that things are kind of roller moving this quickly? It was at the point where it happened when it started to, but most of the time, even for that year or year and a half, nothing happened. So nothing happened at all, and then everything happened. So it wasn't as if it built over a year or a year and a half. It was just like a week or two weeks we had gone from nobody knowing who the band was to people like Seymour Stein flying over from yeah. America to try and sign us and stuff. And But we still hadn't played a gig or anything like that. Uh, and we still didn't have an audience of any kind. So it was... It was really strange, particularly to me and maybe Stevie, who we'd both been doing it for maybe 10 or 12 years mm-hmm. by that point, and knowing how easy it is for nothing to happen yeah um, and it, so it was just like a, a phenomenon really um, I think you can get the idea of suddenly you know your Richard Coburn appears and now Stevie Jackson's appearing <laughs> and this band is being built um, you said that Stuart had an idea not just of what he wanted the band but what he didn't want the band to be yeah. I think maybe that applies to yourself as well there did you have a clean idea of a kind of image that wasn't going to be certain things, for instance, kind of rock cliche and all the things that uh, a lot of rock music was promoting at the time? Yeah, just everything we had experienced in beatbox and <clears throat> doing gigs with sound men who tried to give you a certain rock sound and just the whole kind of rock and roll thing of sex, drugs and rock and roll and the machismo of rock and mm-hmm. all that kind of thing. It was, yeah, it, it was the intention to avoid all of that and and really just all of the standard way of doing things, the venues that they're wearing glass going and I think a lot of it was from the beatbox experience. It was very clear that you didn't want to become like the people who were running the course in mm-hmm. beatbox and yeah. that was something to be avoided. And so almost as much as the music, I think, I might be wrong, uh, the that stance itself seemed to find an audience. That yeah. there, there was people out there willing that wanted it was about the music and they didn't particularly care about the haircuts and, and all of these things and it um they were kind of waiting for something different they just maybe didn't realize it at the time yeah i think so and i think there was just the fortuitous thing of the internet just kind of taken off at that point so all these people could suddenly find out that each other existed and the band became a bit of a focal point for all these people finding each other online on the sinister uh, mailing list. And it was, I think, the the internet was quite instrumental. In, That's interesting. And in, 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 in us being able to 
do something that you just couldn't do because there was a standard, quite a standard way of doing things then that had been developed since the 1960s and be, had yeah. become quite uh, crystallised by then. Yeah, that, that is interesting because I suppose perhaps the people who were discovering how the internet was used best at that time might be the very people that would like you the music you were making yeah. you know because it was not everyone had access to um a you know internet or even cared about it yeah because didn't think it was such a big deal yeah. um so as it, the real kind of a uh, success really begins after this book ends is that yeah. what you said? yeah so why did you decide to chop it up <laughs> i think really because once once Things started happening. Everybody knows what happened. Yeah. That that story's out there. I think that's probably fair enough. Yeah. yeah. Even if everybody doesn't know it, everyone can find it out if they want to. But it was really just I felt I felt this part was quite undocumented, even for most of the people who are in Bell and Sebastian. Yeah. Because it's only at the end that particularly Chris and Bell come in, but it's even quite late on before Stevie comes in. And Sarah isn't in it at all. Yeah. So it's a whole part of the band that some people in the band didn't experience. And was this kind of uh, early period ever really discussed? I mean, you say, well, you know, we started out, you know, did beatbox, and or was it just you just got on with the music? No, I think that, I think uh, that Stevie was keen to read the book because to find out what had happened because we hadn't really talked about it and particularly because the band didn't do interviews when we came out yeah. at first that's the stuff that you would have talked about in interviews how did you get together and mm-hmm. how did you meet so it was entirely untold really and there was I think partly self-made mythology about the band as well particularly yeah. in those early years yeah the, there was just the thing of the two Bell and Sebastians, the one that was Stuart's imaginary Bell and Sebastian, and the one that was the actual physical band out in the world. So <laughs> Sounds like you might look over it, you'd be quite disappointed <laughs> by the real thing. Yeah. <laughs> it's entirely possible. <laughs> um, well, since, you know, Karen's with us, and an important part of the book is actually the correspondence you have with her all through this time. Yeah. Um, I kind of think about it, it's almost like letters from the front line being sent <laughs> home. Uh, this is happening. So, I mean, how is that for you, Karen, when you were receiving this kind of um, correspondence about this yeah. time in particular? Yeah, at the time, um, well, it was really interesting for me to get all this information about stuff he was doing and it's it's interesting that he used a lot of the letters to get information to write the book mm-hmm. so um, going through them again I, you know you can't forget it so long ago so. sure um, but yeah it, it's funny thinking of it now you know at the time it's like oh yeah this guy knows in a band and they're doing these things you don't pay a huge amount of attention yeah. but you know the stories about beatbox and stuff it was all just really clear I mean he's a really great writer so the letters are really it's all really clear. So in, in a way, they kind of seemed like stories to me. Yeah, and, yeah. Until we were kind of meeting up more and, um, you know, and then I met the band and saw them and stuff. So it, 
it started becoming like, oh, this this is real. <laughs> it is strange to go back to, to letters that you've written in the past. I did that recently, and from, and one, it doesn't seem sometimes that you've written them. Yeah. It seems like someone else was involved in all these yeah. things. Is that how writing the book was? Yeah, uh, not so much. The, the memories were really clear, and I was a bit stuck in that period, but going back to the letters and finding it was a completely different voice that I used then and stuff, and that I was just kind of really enthusiastic in a way that I'm not now or <laughs> was a surprise. But I think it was a real help because for me, Karen was quite central to my part in the Bell and Sebastian story because it was Karen that had introduced me to indie music in general, mm-hmm. like the Pastels. I just, was just completely unaware of that music and I started writing to Karen when I was 19 I think so that would be about 1989 and she introduced me to that music then so without that what Stuart was doing wouldn't have made any sense to me and I don't think I'd have got involved in it Right. and a lot to most people in Beatbox what he was doing didn't they it it didn't make any sense to them. They didn't know what he was doing. So yeah. Cam had given me that background that that just made me able to understand it as soon as I first met Stuart. Even before he played music, I thought, uh, just from the way he was dressed and stuff, uh, he's one of those guys that are in those bands that Cam likes. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, that seems to me almost the, the rock family tree, if you like, that Bell and Sebastian follow in terms of yeah. Scottish music anyways, pastels and BMX bandits yeah. and, and that kind of thing. Um, and I guess a lot of people who were making music weren't listening to that. You know, it's still quite a small, yeah. you know, as you see nowadays with people can find, and if you put any band in, it'll come up influences mm. and it'll take you through yeah. them. But it wasn't like that. It wasn't yeah. word of mouth. No, I, 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 I wonder how I knew about the pastels. And, you know, thinking back, on it, how, did I, how did I know that? I, was, I mean, I grew up on a farm in the middle of nowhere, but I went to school in Kilmarnock, so right. I really was, it seems like, in the middle of nowhere. Um, and it was my friend Mandy and I were just quite obsessed, really, with the pastels, BMX bandits. But now I, th- I do think, how did we... Probably somebody's big brother or sister that had. Well, fancies, I suppose. I I remember seeing, but yeah, I don't don't know. Liam, was it Liam? No. Uh, Yeah, so it's it's funny. Think now it's really just really easy to. Yeah. Not just find the information, but hear it straight away. Yeah, exactly. I can go back and hear the old stuff as well. But even just stuff that you did know about, like so, I remember trekking all over Glasgow trying to find an associated album. Just you couldn't get it in Kilmarnock, you know. Yeah. Just. That, that difference alone, um, you I just think, get everything instantly. Um, growing up in, in Glasgow, I don't think we ever realised how spoilt we were for access to record shops and, and, and bands playing on the street, you know, quite well-known bands yeah. playing on the street. Um, but then I had friends who were lived in a small place called Annan and Dumfrieshire and they had nothing like that, you know, yeah. it was the local John Menzies and whatever that. Yeah. Yeah. I think Boots, I remember back Christmas Boots. And the library, it was really... Mm. The way I grew up, there, were, there weren't any record shops. Yeah. So it was just whatever they had in the library, which was Dweezil Zappa. Is that his name? Wow, it is. Frank Zappa's son. <laughs> that, that was the one that was always sitting at the front of the rack, and I never took it out. It was called Having a Bad Day, I think. 
<laughs> but he had really good skin and really good hair and at the time I was a teenager with acne and bad hair and I thought how can he be having a bad hair <laughs> <laughs> and his dad's friends up I forgot to say that, <laughs> that sounds like the librarian that was his favourite record and he was putting it there I kind of like that I wonder if it's uh, you know you had to kind of work to find the music that was yours back then. It would be, yeah, you know, it wasn't kind of. And of course, by the time we were writing, you know, mixtapes for that's how it was. That's how it yeah. spread. So that's why you got bombarded with yeah. the BMX band at them. Yeah, because even in Glasgow, I would be in bands. Although I was still living in Alexandria, I was in bands with people who lived in Glasgow, and even musicians who lived in Glasgow. They did, they'd never heard of the pastels, never mind having heard them mm-hmm. or heard the music. So it was it was quite a hidden thing. Yeah. Um, as you say, I think still the predominant sound was the kind of white soul boy sound yeah. or, or, or kind of rock, more rock sounds. Yeah. Um, well, it's the perfect thing to want a looper, I think. Um, how did Looper come about? Because you were you started Looper when you were still in Bell and Sebastian, is that right? Yeah. Um, I think initially it started with me doing this spoken word song with Bell and Sebastian, A Century of Elvis. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to explore that a bit more. And, But I think we actually formed the band for... My sister was doing a fundraiser during her degree at, at the art school and I think by then I was I had made a spoken word single for Sub Pop mm-hmm. and that was Looper mm-hmm. that was just me on the computer mm-hmm. and she asked us to do a show of that kind of thing at her, at her fundraiser okay she asked you to do a show and then you uh, continually right. pestered me <laughs> to join you on stage which I was horrified at the thought of I said, no, that's not what I do. But because of possible things, I think you you must have done that already for some yeah. had you? So there's a typewriter, and I thought, well, I can play the... That's what you were trying to get to do. Come on station, play the typewriter. And although I thought that was quite a cool thing to do, I was just, I'm far too nervous to do that. I can't do that. But so I thought, well, I'll I'll make key lots of films, and he didn't want to just be sitting, getting stared at. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll make you films and put some wee spinning sculptures and distract people with super loops and things um, so that, that was the compromise because I didn't want to be on stage uh, pretending I could play <laughs> um, which I've, I've now learned how to pretend <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah so it, the first show was at the art school yeah and was it just that it was kind of almost a multimedia uh, thing yeah. with the music and... yeah I had a box that Cam had built and I sat on the floor with it with all my well, I think I pretended it was samplers. I think it was really a CD player. <laughs> <laughs> because the first time I heard Looper, you know, it did. It, there was samples and there was electronica, but yeah. it always sounded like there was vowels involved and maybe it, not a laptop. You know, yeah. it did sound like it was almost nostalgic for something that was quite new. Yeah, was that a deliberate thing? It was. Yeah, it was. It just seemed to be at the exact moment where you could start making stuff on a PC at home. And I think about 1997 mm-hmm. actually using audio rather than MIDI right. and I'd done a MIDI course back at the end of the 80s just a year long college course so I'd learned sequencing and all that but I didn't like 
MIDI sounds and it was only really when I realised you could use kind of old, old sound and sounds that were kind of sounds that I had learned in Bell and Sebastian like mm-hmm. uh, lots of pianos and mellotrons and things yeah. that I'd only really learned through Chris and Bell and Sebastian just learning that you could now make short loops with them on the computer but use it in the way that I'd learned in college to do sequencing uh, but it was that yeah that you could make that old kind of sound with it that attracted me to mm-hmm. um, and so how did it go from those early days to becoming a signed band and, and when did you decide that Looper was your future rather than uh, continuing with Bell and Sebastian um, it progressed it evolved quite slowly to start mm-hmm. with didn't it although you, you t- your contract with yeah, even when we signed to Bell's, to Jeepster with Bell and Sebastian, I had still intended to be doing my music. So right. I'd got a, a special contract that only me and Beck had that allowed you to do your own music with a different label from the one you were signed to. Right. Uh, so I'd always <laughs> had that intention. And we made the sub pop, I'd made the sub pop single, the first looper one before we even did a show so I already had a recording contract with Sub Pop for right. it but I didn't have any songs or a band <laughs> so, so it, it evolved into I think we did a few more shows like that art school show didn't we yeah, and gradually did. my brother joined doing slides yeah. helping Karen and then mm-hmm. he started playing guitar a bit hiding backstage to play guitar <laughs> <laughs> And then, uh, again, it just happened really quickly and within, it seemed like a few months or a f- not very long period, Scott, who I'd been in bands with before I was in Bell and Sebastian, had joined and we were on tour in America with the Flaming Lips, but I'm not really sure <laughs> how it got from there to there. <laughs> quite quickly, Yeah. Mm. Uh, that seems quite an odd um, uh, Line up being the flaming lips. <laughs> was that when they were like pretending to that their heads were bleeding and yeah, and it was, yeah. Was soft bulletin. Soft bulletin, yeah, yeah. fantastic. Were, yeah, they were still pretty small on the stage, but yeah, brilliant fun. Really a bit, I can imagine. It was a good match at the time because they didn't have a drummer either. They were using Stephen's drums on video behind them, and they were both using videos. So, but it was three three months we toured mm-hmm. for them with. It was, yeah, they were great. Everybody was destroyed by the end. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and was this, I mean, when Up a Tree came out, was that roughly about that time? Yeah, it was soon after. We did a our own headline tour in America first when Up a Tree came out, and that was a month-long tour. And it was quite soon after that we came back and did the mm. bowly where the... Flaming Lips were playing and oh, yeah. almost went straight back to America with them after that. Yeah. And the, yeah, the Geometrid wasn't out yet when we did the Flaming Lips tour, I don't think, was it? it just And we got the vinyls on the last day of the yeah. tour or something. Um, and you talk about the album The Geometrid, which has got Mondo 787 on it, yeah. which of course was picked up by Cameron Crowe yeah. for Vanilla Sky. Yeah. How did that come about? 
I don't really know. Um, we did he hear that... Told, Subport told us that whether they had sent the album to somebody... It, it, we got told it got played on set right. while they were filming and they just got really used to hearing it with what they were looking at. So that's the story we were told. Yeah, they, they, they just put it in the film as a... I think they, they did say they'd been playing it every day on the set to make them happy. And then when they were editing, they just put the songs in as place markers of where they wanted songs. And then at the end, they replaced them, but two of them. They, I think, probably just accidentally. <laughs> so you were almost place. the soundtrack to the yeah, whole film. The, film. the soundtrack to the whole thing, thing to begin yeah. with. Yeah. Well, he yeah. does mention Lippard in it, doesn't he? Yeah. Uh, it's the second time we've mentioned Cameron Crowe in this podcast. There's a band called um, Skinny Dipper who are on Olive Grove Records, mm-hmm. who originally were called Almost Famous. Oh, Apparently, right. he found out and followed them on Twitter and <laughs> said, oh, I really like your stuff. So, he obviously does love his music. I think yeah. that's. Um, so, the, the, the box sets out. So, to explain a little bit about um, is it five CD set? Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of songs, uh, 58 songs, I think, altogether, which is almost everything. There's a few. A few strays that didn't quite make it, and uh, really because it was just starting to get well, that's that's probably enough. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, Yeah, it took quite a while to because we signed the catalogue to me, and we just just thought that they would release the original albums as Mm -hmm. they were. Daniel thought it should be a box site, and then us being us decided we can't just do it on box, (laughs) you've got to to mess about with it somehow. So, yeah, we kind of reordered everything and. kind of tried to make something new mm-hmm. out of the old stuff which I, I think worked but um, that's up for <laughs> there's a new it. version of Mondo 77 on it isn't there or is it just a new video to go with it I just noticed a new it. video yeah. yeah there's a new video there was a new 8 bit no, version no. of it as well but I'm not sure I don't if think it ended no. up uh, no but we've kind of grouped everything by type rather than doing it by album so yeah spoken word songs are together and yeah, we kind of electronic ones on my desk. So. And um, Skinny Legs, is that new single? Yeah, yeah it's, it's much as it as a single. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was on the radio at five o'clock this That's morning. Right. Oh, fantastic. On radio six, I think. Yeah. So it's obviously a big hit. <laughs> As one of those weird coincidences, Ian Gardner, who did the video mm-hmm. with you, uh, I was at school. Really? Yeah, absolutely. One of the he nicest men I know. He is, he's lovely. Yeah. He was my tutor at college. Was he really? I went back and did a, an animation movie. Ah, fantastic. Um, and that's how I met, met him. Yeah. And it's a great video. I mean, it's a lot. Yes. It's, it really is a fantastic uh, video to go with it. You should Thank have a look at that. Um, so, what's next for Looper? Have you got any plans? Or? I think... The main thing is we need to try and get back to having a live show. Right. We haven't really played live for over ten years, I think. Mm. Um, Scott left the band and Ronnie decided he was too old to do music anymore, but he's seven years younger than me. (laughs) (laughs) You're dropping a hint. It's something weird, but I'm trying to tell you something. So at the moment we're toying with the idea of doing a sort of synth pop duo, ah. but, but the wrong way around with Cam on synth and me on, sing- on singing, so it'll be sort of... Reverse Yazoo. Yazoo, the wrong way around. Nobody else in the Yeah. <laughs> um, 
And I'd like to talk a bit about you because you're a writer as well, a novelist as well. Yeah. And um, I, a few years ago now, reviewed the novel Nalda Said, and I didn't really know anything about it. I picked it up and saw your name on it. I went, well, have a read of that. And it's a terrific book. I mean, really uh, fantastic. What was the... I mean, tell us a little bit about your career as a writer because it's not the only book you've written. No, I think I started writing novels when I was about 20, I think. And I wrote two novels that didn't get published. And then when I was about... Yeah, then I wrote a short story that did get published in a collection along with Ali Smith and people like mm-hmm. that. So I thought, I thought that was me getting somewhere. And then, so I wrote Nalda Said. Mm-hmm. And that didn't get anywhere and then I stopped. Yeah, really? I think it was probably five years after I wrote Nalda Said it got published. And I suspect it got published because I was in Bell and Sebastian yeah. and that was a selling Sure. Selling point, and I don't think it would have got published otherwise. But I got a deal for two books, or another one quite quickly after that, about a character called Peacock uh, trying to make a dance version of Glen Campbell's Rhinestone Cowboy. <laughs> uh, and that was going to be a film in Graham Linehan that did Father Ted yeah. wrote the screenplay for it and stuff, but then then somebody made a dance version of Glen Campbell's Rhinestone Cowboy. Of course they did. And it was a hit. Uh, so it kind of spoiled it as a frame. Uh, and then I, I think I, I did... The, the Peacock Johnson character ended up in an Ian Rankin novel as the main villain after that. And Did he, he pick that as the name? Yeah, it was kind of a, a charity auction. Oh, right. Where you okay. auction to get yourself in one of his books, so I did it as Peacock Johnson, and uh, he, did, he did pretend to be Peacock Johnson. Yeah, we did a we did a book tour where we were in characters, we Peacock, Peacock Johnson and Bev, and a guy called Evil Bob who had really been a driver on the American tour with the Flaming Lips. Right. So we did a whole kind of uh, performance art thing with that. And it culminated in a show at the Royal Festival Hall in London, which was really us killing off Looper at that time. It was uh, it was called a murder mystery DJ set where Peacock Johnson had killed me, uh, and then that we kind of retired for a while after that. Uh, and I stopped. I did. I, I wrote a reply to Ian Rankin's book. Uh, and then I stopped writing again for a while. Karen went back to college, and while she was there, I just studied literature for, mm-hmm. uh, on my own for quite a few years, and I've got back into it again now. So are you working on something at the moment? Yeah, well, I've got a a series for young adults coming out. The first one coming out in October. Oh, really? And us started working on my peacock character again and my agent's going to be trying to get something going with that soon as well so. I love Ian Rankin saying that the name of his villain's going to be Peacock yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, are you sure we've, we've done this we signed the contract with him um, well 
I think I think you're right. I mean, it's in the all night coffee book as well. You know, you write really well, um, really um, engaging. And what's interesting about in the all night coffee, I think, is that you almost take a step back from it and kind of look on everything else that's going around. Yeah. Was that how you felt in the band at the time, or or was it just looking back and and you know you'd maybe don't look at what you're doing, but you can see what other people are doing. Yeah, I don't. I didn't feel like that in the band. I think uh, when I think back on it now, I feel I imposed myself too much at the time. <laughs> but I think it, it's much more of a. It's an accident of the fact that I kind of modelled it on the Great Gatsby or Breakfast at Tiffany's, where Stuart's Holly Go Lightly and I'm. Ah, <laughs> oh, do you know what? I didn't pick that up, and I really wish I had. I might go back and rewrite the review now. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, so that just really has always appealed to me, that way of telling a story where the narrator's not not the focus yeah. of the book. Uh, and I think it was a way of trying to make up for the fact that I felt I had meddled too much in the band at the time. <laughs> You'd obviously done something right, because it was all... Um, well... We'd like to kind of finish up just by chatting about kind of influences and things like that. So we spoke a little bit about Pastels and BMX Bandits, but yeah. what were your other influences on either Bell, Sebastian or Looper or just in general? I think for me, my main influences were always probably Bob Dylan, Leonard Cohen and Tom Waits, really. Yeah. Uh, so really literal, really literary writers in I, a sense. Yeah, I think people that probably would have been writers in a different era mm-hmm. particularly Leonard Cohen has spoken about how when Bob Dylan came along he realised that way of doing things on the page was was over mm-hmm. uh, yeah so I, I didn't realise until I was older really that it was more literature rather than pop music that I was interested in because I think these people would have been Writers in, in yeah. a different year rather than yep. songwriters, storytellers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, I mean, you, you obviously bring a lot of the visual side of things, and you've done animation, as you say. So, what were your kind of influences in you doing that side of things? Um, actually, a huge influence from my dad's home movies. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I can see that in your work. Yeah, yeah, totally. So I think, and just kind of recently realizing that that's kind of always running through it a wee bit and because Instagram and Instagram filters are a thing now it just you kind of realise oh yeah that's that's what I was trying to do a lot or, and I was actually using quite a lot of my dad's old films mm-hmm. in our Looper shows and <coughs> um, Stuart got me a separate camera at one point and I used to use my dad's old camera and film I used to, I did just film stuff all the time so I think I kind of was hiding behind the camera quite a lot of the time right. because I was a wee bit shy so it's quite a comfortable place to be, just spying on everyone else. But I think my dad, I mean, I'm from quite a big family and the youngest, so yeah, it was one of my jobs. He would get the projector out and the separate films, and he showed me how to load. So that was my job. Was to, yeah. I was finally the... I had a role in the family. <laughs> Being the youngest, <laughs> finally I'm in charge of something. The projectionist. Yeah. So I think that that's just always held a bit of a fascination, and there was always films of my family that I'm not really in, mm-hmm. you know, because it was all before I was born. Yeah, so I was yeah. just fascinated by it. I'm like what. What's, you know, this whole life, this whole world that existed without me in it. So I think that probably influences 
a lot of the films that I do. And because of the film of that time, it does look like a completely different time. Yeah. You know, that's the... It's funny because now the... I made a video for the uh, Paper Boat song mm-hmm. that kind of yeah. coincided with the release of the book. And it's amazing how that footage looks really ancient and really the kind of glow of nostalgia about it just because it was on my dad's shonky old camera. Um, but it was just from, well, it's quite a long time ago, but 96 or 96. The footage, um, for those who haven't seen it, uh, is footage of the band, isn't it, down, yeah. um, is it the Kelvin? No, it was up in... Yeah. Oh, was it? Okay. Same day that I took the photo there on the cover. On the cover. Um, and yeah, you... we just, we had a day trip. And uh, I think the intention was at the time that we would I would film stuff for a video for people boat. Uh, because I did have a little paper boat, quite literally. It just so <laughs> um, happens. Yeah. So, but it's, it's funny how old that looks now. Just mm, yeah. Amazing. But it kind of works today. Yeah. I think it works particularly with the launch of the book because it does kind of typify that period, yeah. without a doubt. And anyone who's a fan of the band will immediately be taken back at that time. And um, what, in terms of writers, you, know, you said you've been studying literature. What yeah. kind of writers have been influencing you? I think I've always... It had quite a solid core of people that I discovered when I was quite young and primarily J.D. Salinger mm-hmm. when I was 15 he got that uh, in school and just this teacher who turned up really briefly and it was like a, just a, a quick sort of sliver of light in the terrifying school <laughs> and then he gave us J.D. Salinger and Tom Gunn, the poet. Yeah. And encouraged me a bit for three or four months while he was there. Then he got stabbed in the playground and that was kind of my... Now uh, there's the basis of your film. Yeah. I'm sure there's an episode of The Simpsons where that kind of teacher comes and Lisa and falls yeah. for him. Yeah. I think I, 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 I had a, a teacher who kind of introduced me to Scottish literature because we didn't get any at all. Yeah. He gave us... Chief Yet Stag in the Black Black Oil and uh-huh. Sunset Song and, that. and it was the same thing. It was like, yeah. oh wow, this is out there. Yeah. Um, and he could start in the plane. Yeah, and that was it. That was my <laughs> education in literature. The rest of it's all just been self-directed since then. Um, it's interesting talking. I mean, talking for the last forty minutes or so. Uh, you said you know Stuart had this idea of the band, and then there was the actual band, and yeah. then. You know, Luther seems to be made of people who didn't really want to be on stage. <laughs> We're doing all they could do to hide behind it again. And I think that's really interesting because the, the, the kind of clash between real creativity and wanting to make music and make art and everything and performance, which seems to be a different thing altogether, yeah. more uncomfortable thing. Yeah. Is that what you kind of experienced? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I think probably my most comfortable experience of performing was being in Bell and Sebastian because... I was off to the side, uh, and then when we were doing Looper as a band, I found that quite easy, but I didn't get anything out of it, I don't think, and mm. I realised just a few weeks ago, talking to Karen, I don't have a single memory of being on stage, right. and I remember that it's as if I'm in the audience looking at the stage, so yeah, I don't really get anything out of it, I don't think, and I think you need to get something out of it to go through all the horrible parts <laughs> of touring. Yeah, and yeah. That needs to be driving you to do it because you're getting some kind of thing from the audience that doesn't really do anything for me. Yeah. 
I look, what about yourself? I mean, you you have played on stage now. And yeah, yeah. I got. Have you taken I, to I was always quite nervous. More of just about playing music and being terrified that I would just do it wrong, <laughs> which I obviously did do. But, uh, because of the whole lo-fi homemade thing, you know, you kind of get away with it. Um, but with the deluxe version of the box set, we have a cassette of a live show that we did in America at the Troubadour. Um, it's Stuart just we came across. Yeah. And it, I mean, we hadn't heard it for, what is it, 16 years old or something. Um, and it actually sounds really great. And I do hit a few bum notes, but it sounds fine. Um, but I, d- I got to quite enjoy... Yeah, I did enjoy doing the shows. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was always a bit of a palaver. Because we had... We did always try to have visuals or do, make it more than just a bunch of people standing uncomfortably on stage. Uh, so doing a show was always a bit of a, a carry-on, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, that was kind of fun. But I suppose that was my part in it. So yeah. trying to think up new ways to do it so that it's not just us standing there looking really scared um, it, it is quite fun I do enjoy it and I, we do keep talking about it uh, about different ways we could do it now uh-huh. uh, before everyone else quits for the yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well I think we've taken up enough of your time but I just want to say thank you very much for coming in and doing this thanks, thanks and uh, it's a fantastic book you know, if you haven't, if any interest in Bell and Sebastian, or even just being in a band, I think it's quite informative about for people who um, think that's what I'd like to do is be in a band. Yeah. To see the the pitfalls, but also the things that can be done if you kind of stick to your own belief about you know, there's because there was a clear vision throughout that you know we want this is what we want to be and this is what we don't want to be. Yeah. And also, I think, and you mentioned it before, is having the songs sometimes even before you've got the band maybe that's a better way of doing it than yeah. having a band and having no songs yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, thanks Stuart and Cal for coming along thanks, thanks very much. much and we'll be back soon with someone completely different cheers <laughs>